All right, well, we are in Philippians 2 today, so if you have your Bible, you can open there. Um, If you don't have a Bible, feel free to raise your hand, and our ushers would love to come and bring you one. You can feel free to take it if you don't have one. Uh, It's our gift to you. Well, it all began with the grass. Back in the Garden of Eden, it began with the grass. The famous scene where Adam and Eve clutch the fruit. And what was at the heart of this temptation? Was it really about the fruit? I'd suggest to you that no, there was something deeper that the fruit represented and embodied. The heart of the lie was an attack on God's character. That at its heart, the enemy was saying, God is really not out for your best interest. God is grasping for himself. God is protecting himself. He is keeping something from you. Yes, Adam and Eve, it may appear that God has put you here out of his love for you and his desire to flourish. He's brought you into existence. He exists for you. He wants to lavish himself on you. But really, he's hiding something. He's protecting himself. Because God knows if you take the fruit of this tree, you'll become like him, knowing good and evil. And you'll know you'll be like God. You'll be a threat. So he's protecting himself. He's grasping for his own power, his own authority. The heart of the lie is an attack on God's character. That this is not a self-giving God, it is a self-grasping God. And the irony is that this is actually a better depiction of the enemy. This is actually Satan's character, the deceiver, that what we know is that he is one who is self-grasping, who sought to become like God and to exalt himself over God, and that he wants to grasp for us in our lives and use us and manipulate us, ultimately to exalt himself. The other irony is that you and I, we become what we worship. That the self, then when we worship the self-grasping God, it forms us into a self-grasping people. What we're going to find this morning is that uh, in Philippians 2, is that Jesus has come to take a sledgehammer to the false image of the self-grasping God and to reveal to the fullest extent that our God is a self-giving God, that he's the true maker of the world. And that we, when we grasped for that apple, we were grasping ultimately for the self. And yet the self-giving God invites us to become a self-giving people. So Philippians 2 today, Philippians 2 is the antidote to Genesis 3. It is the uh, ultimate sledgehammer to the lie in the garden that shatters the illusion and reveals the fullness of who God is with us and for us in Christ. Uh, we're in a series on Philippians right now. Every week we're kind of walking through this book of the Bible. And uh, as we come to Philippians 2 today, many you know, scholars and others believe this is like the climax of the book. That everything uh, up to this has been building up to Philippians 2, and everything after is playing off of it. It's all building up to this exaltation, this famous ancient hymn that celebrates who Christ is and what he has done for us. And ultimately in Christ, we discover that God is not self-grasping, but self-giving. And that the self-giving God makes us a self-giving people. And so if you would uh, humor me and even take your your fist right now and just kind of clench it wherever you sit right now. The title for the sermon this morning is Give Up the Grass. You may tell the person sitting next to you, let it go. All right. Philippians 2, verse 1. Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, 
having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul opens this passage asking the church to be like Jesus. He opens asking us to be like Jesus, saying that when Jesus gets a hold of your life, your life begins to look like his. Uh, Paul starts here with a rhetorical question. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and he's being rhetorical here. That's like asking, like, hey, if water's wet or if rocks are hard, right, of course they are. And of course there's encouragement in Christ. God has come to us in Christ, and he encourages, he builds us up. Paul says, if there's any comfort from love, and we hear that word comfort, I think we can just kind of think sympathy, like, oh, God listens to us. And yes, that's true. It, It entails that, kind of that soothing sympathy, but it's something more. This word comfort, it it means actually like this strengthening, this building up. It's the same word that gets, uh, it's at the root of the word bravery. It makes us bold. It makes us brave. It's a military word. It's the same word, it's the root of like to fortify, to build up. And so Christ's love, it comes to us, and it's not only a listening ear. Jesus' love strengthens us. It emboldens us. It builds us up, and it makes us brave. Paul says, if there is any participation in the Spirit. I love this, how Jesus doesn't just invite us to an observation of Christ from a distance, but rather a participation in Christ up close. That he has given us of his very Spirit, his power and presence, that we might live in him and with him and for him. And as we do, if you've received this, Paul's saying, if you've received this life of Jesus in you, what's it going to look like? Well, he goes on to say, the love of Christ builds up community. He talks about us then being of one mind, of the same mind and the same love, living in full accord of one mind. That when, when Jesus' love gets a hold of your life, you begin to build up one another. Jesus said that his disciples, they will know you're my disciples, they'll know you're my people by your love for one another. Now, I have to confess, I think this is one of my favorite passages, Philippians 2. I love this passage. And for years when I read this, I think my primary association with it was like mission, right? It was mission, like going, man, the same way that Jesus laid down his life for us, we should lay down our lives for our city, for those in our world. Like, we should go out and, and serve those who are outside of these walls. And while, yes, that's true, that's not actually Paul's emphasis here. He actually says, if Jesus has gotten a hold of your life, the same way that Jesus laid down his life for us, so we should lay down our lives for one another. Became convicted of this years ago, um, was uh, helped, helped leading in another church years back, and we became convicted at one point that we had gotten really good at serving our city, loving our city, but not very good at loving and serving one another. In some ways, we were better at serving those who were kind of distant from us than those who were up close. And God brought us into a season of going, okay, what does it look like to actually live in gospel community together? Because there's this power that Jesus' vision for his church as his people is that, yes, we would love our city, love our world. But also, sometimes the hardest place to live this out is with those who are right up close, that we would lay down our lives for one another and be a microcosm of his kingdom a display of a people living in union together as his people with Christ as our king. Sometimes we refer to this here at Redemption as the proximity principle, that 
uh, often where Jesus calls us to live this stuff out is with those who are closest to us. It can sometimes be easier to do it on a mission trip out there or uh, once a week volunteering somewhere. And those things are important. We want to continue doing those. But off the foundation that we're doing this with our closest family and friends and with one another is the body of Christ. That we would be laying down our lives together for each other, becoming that microcosm of the kingdom of people living in union together with each other because Christ is our king. Another observation here. He says, the love of Christ, it builds up community. If, if I were to ask you to complete this sentence, that uh, if you were really gripped by Jesus' love, then it would look like dot, dot, dot. Right? Like, what would you put out? What's the activity or the thing that would be assigned? I think for some of us, it might not be a mission or kind of out there. It might be more an individualistic type thing. Individualistic, right? <laughs> an individualistic type thing. Like, I think many of us might say, like, dude, if Jesus really gripped a hold of your life, then you would read your Bible, Right? And yes, I love reading my Bible. We should love reading our Bibles. We probably need to grow and be doing that, that more as well. But it's interesting, for Paul, most of his audience couldn't read. And while that is important, it's interesting here that Paul's emphasis is not kind of an individualistic thing that we should do for ourselves, and it's not just an out there thing. Paul's emphasis here is that if Jesus has really gotten a hold of your life, then you will lay down your lives for one another. That you'll get along and build up each other as the body of Christ with the same love that Christ has expressed towards us. And as he lays out these things uh, that he's calling us to, we see he's really laying out a description of Jesus. That we find Jesus did nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. That Jesus uh, esteemed others more significantly than he esteemed himself. That Jesus looked not only to his own interests, but to the interests of us. Jesus, as our leader, he's lived, lived this out. He's gone before us. He's not calling us to something he's unwilling to do himself. He's actually calling us into a participation in his very life together as his people. And one of these that's really struck me this week, as I'm kind of praying through just this message and reflecting on this, is, man, I believe Jesus is calling us to humility in an age of self-esteem. In humility in an age of self-esteem. It's interesting here, the, the contrast here where it says Jesus, uh, well, it calls us, Paul calls us to esteem others more significantly than ourselves. He calls us to an other's esteem over a self-esteem. And that can be kind of awkward or counterintuitive for us today because we live in an age of self-esteem. Give me an example of what I mean. I was listening to a podcast uh, recently it was uh, two friends from way back in the day who uh, used to be leaders in, in, uh, church, in a church and have since now, years later, they've both walked away from the faith, walked away from their families, walked away from uh, any of that. Um, both have become kind of self-appointed spiritual gurus to help enlighten people, get people in touch with their inner god or goddess and, I don't know, live this enlightened life. So I was listening to them on this podcast kind of talk about uh, their, their journey to where, how they got to where they are today. And so much of it was wrapped up in this uh, a language and this idea that before, any time my family needed something from me or my friends needed something from me or my church needed something, it was like they were plucking and pulling away little pieces of myself. And I finally got to this point where I just had to say, forget it and shove away my family, shove away my friends, shove away my church, and just go, I'm going to live for me now. I'm tired of living for others. And when I was struggling, I was listening, I was like, dude, you guys think you're Elsa from Frozen, right? <laughs> Like, 
I've got this inner identity, and there's my tradition, my community, and all these people, and they all want something, they don't get me, and so I've got to, like, let it go and break away to the mountains and get in touch with my inner self and now come back and show everyone who I really am, you know, and just going, like, dude, you think you're Elsa, like, <laughs> all right, <laughs> but we live in this age of self-esteem where, you know, the irony is when we feel like we, you know, when we're grasping at lifting up how great we think we need to think of ourselves, when you're the one that has to set yourself up that way, the irony is that you have to keep it going and control. It was interesting to hear where they had to, felt like they had to keep telling each other, oh, you're so beautiful, you're so wonderful, you're so great. You're so great. And um, I don't know, I found that, that one of the easiest ways I found to know when someone's kind of insecure is when they can't stop talking about themselves, right? It's like they're needing to prove to themselves and to you that they're okay. And part of the beauty and the irony of the gospel is that it's kind of counterintuitive, but when we give up trying to build up this identity, this thing for ourselves, and we start living into receiving our identity from God, as opposed to steam, we find God building us up from the outside in, calling us who we are, giving us an identity that is unshakable. I don't need to prove myself to others because God's already proven he's in it with me and for me. And there is some nuance here that's important. Like, this is not saying, like, hate yourself or think badly of yourself, kind of doing the opposite, right? No, I, I love, uh, someone has said, the, you know, definition of humility. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, right? It's not saying that we should think badly about ourselves. I mean, it's going, man, we can kind of stop the navel-gazing and get our attention off ourselves to begin with and look to God and who he says we are and look to others he's placed. And the irony, Jesus, is that when we die to ourselves, we find life from God around us. Um, but yeah, it's not thinking badly of ourselves. Paul says uh, not to have selfish ambition, but not all ambition is selfish, right? Like there's good ambition to change the world in, in ways that are good, to live boldly for God, to actually build up our community, to lay our lives down for our family. There are good forms of ambition. Paul says, look not only to your own interests. He doesn't say don't look to your own interests, right? He says just not only. He assumes that we are looking to our own interests and says, but look also to the interests of others. Like it's good to look to our own interests. It's good to exercise and take care of yourself and those kind of things. But he's just saying don't get so consumed versus getting your attention on God and his world as well. Jesus calls us to love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't say love your neighbor instead of yourself. He says love your neighbor as yourself. He assumes that we love ourselves, right? Like it's kind of... The implicit human condition, but calls us into a love of God. He's calling us to become curved outward from kind of this grasping for ourselves and grasping and need to establish ourselves and instead to let go, to give up that grasp and to get curved outward, looking to God and others in love. What we find is a God who has already come to us in love. Our world says, you do you, but Jesus says, I do them. And he invites us into a similar life. Paul next goes on to this going, uh, the, the resource, the way that we find the resource where rather than feeling like it's all getting pulled away from you, rather than finding, finding life, is when we look to Christ and find our identity in who he is and what he's done for us. And so let's move to that now in verse 5. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus 
Because have this mind, we can think of mind as just kind of like the brain and the intellect and thinking, right, whatever. But the word actually comes from this word for like the diaphragm or even the midriff, like that, that which is surrounding your heart. So he's going to have this, like this full-fledged orientation from your gut, from the inside out. Jesus, this is Jesus's, and he's given it to you, to us as his people. As the head, he directs us as his body with this mindset which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. All right, so Paul here looks at the radical descent of Christ and uh, tells us, that we can become like Jesus because Jesus became like us. We can become like Jesus because Jesus became like us. He made the first move. He came, entered the neighborhood. And one of the things that Paul points out here is that the power and the craziness, the scandal, that God became a slave. God became a slave. He contrasts that. Though he was in the form of God, he took on the form of a slave or servant. The word servant is the uh, Greek word for slave, like the lowest rung of the social ladder. So Jesus went from the highest rung, the heavenly throne of God above, and took on form of the lowest rung of society and, and all. And though he was in the form of God, took on the form of slave. And we can hear that word, the form of, and kind of think like, oh, it's just like a mask Jesus puts on. He had one mask on, he put another mask on. No, it's actually that word form. It means the outer expression of one's inner substance. It's a revelation of who he really is. You can also say it's the, like his nature. So though he is in the nature of God, he took on the nature of a servant. I mentioned this is a, a hymn. This is an ancient hymn. Uh, we don't know whether Paul wrote it or someone else, but it's probably the earliest known Christ hymn that we have in the early church, or one of the earliest known. And, and in it here, it's got like poetry going on. And one of those lines here is where it essentially says, um, though he was hyparchon, he did not harpogmon, right? Which are not really these poetic, beautiful sounding words in English. But in Greek, it's going, though he was harpogmon, though he existed as God, he was not harpogmon grasping for that. He wasn't grasping for that which was already his. Which is ironic. We're striving to be like God, grasping for what's not ours. And he has it, and he's not grasping after it. Jesus wasn't striving to be like God. He is God. And as he takes on the form or the nature of a slave, one of the things we see here is that, um, that being in the form of God speaks to his identity, right? But taking on the form of a slave speaks to his character. That he is not a self-grasping, he's not grasping after anything to cling to it for himself. He lets go of the privileges and the status that he's had from eternity in order to enter into the depths with us and lay down his life for us and serve us. <clears throat> Jesus did this in every movement of his life. Paul kind of walks through here first uh, the hymn. It works through his, from his incarnation that he emptied himself. Really, he poured himself out. It doesn't mean he emptied himself of his divinity, but it means he emptied himself of his status and privilege that was associated with it. You can think of his incarnation as almost like pouring this pitcher of water like, uh, into this clay earthen vase that was fragile and vulnerable. He 
poured his divinity, his essence, his being. He, he didn't trade his divinity for humanity, but he poured out his divinity and he assumed humanity to himself. He took on our frailty, our vulnerability, our fragility. Paul goes on to his life saying that he uh, not only was born in the likeness of men, but took on the form of a slave. That in Christ the king became a peasant and was still king, but almost incognito in disguise walking around. And I, I love how uh, one author I was reading was talking about how the contrast between this and what he called the bungee jump of uh, a lot of other gods, like Greek gods, where um, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't unknown like in Greek mythology for gods to kind of incarnate in the sense that they'd come down and they'd walk among humans and stuff. But it was a very different kind of thing where they would come and they would take on the appearance of a human, the, but they, they weren't really, right? And they would cause a bunch of chaos and division and whatever. And then as soon as they might be vulnerable to attack, they'd whoop, bungee jump, like <laughs> go back up, right? So they kind of jump down, cause a bunch of chaos, and then jump back up. Jesus didn't do the bungee jump. Like he came in and he took it on and he made himself vulnerable and exposed in the fullness of our humanity. Paul goes on to the death of Christ. This is all the way to the extent that he humbled himself in obedience even to death the cross speaks to the extent of his humiliation the extent of his obedience his trust in the father even unto the point of death to vindicate and raise him from the grave jesus went to hell and back our sins to serve us to lay his life down to lift us up to him and when we look at jesus we see who god really is and what god is really like that it's not that Jesus is over here and God's over here. It's that God has come for us in Christ. That God has come to us in Christ and reveals, Jesus reveals, he says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. As Jesus comes, God has come in Christ and reveals the deepest heart and character and being of God to us as his people. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Like, yes, he is glorious. But it is a humble glory, a self-giving glory, not a self-grasping. One that is exalted in self-sacrifice and giving his life for the sake of the world. That Jesus takes, again, the ultimate sledgehammer to the lie in the garden. He shatters the idol of the self-grasping God. He reveals in its place the true creator, the self-giving God, who's come for us in Christ. The lie in the garden was that God is self-serving, that he's self-grasping, that he's a tyrant who ultimately wants to keep you in place and make you a slave. But I love these words by uh, an author I was reading this week, Christopher West, uh, talking about uh, the, the message of the cross and the gospel, where he observes that Christ's self-gift, it says to us, you don't believe in the Father's love, Jesus essentially says, let me make it real for you. Let me incarnate it for you so that you can taste and see. You don't believe that God wants to give you life? I will bleed myself dry so that my life's blood can vivify you. You thought God was a tyrant, a slave driver. You thought he would whip your back if you gave him the chance? Well, I will take the form of a slave. I will let you whip my back and nail me to a tree. I will let you lord it over me to show you that the Father has no desire to lord it over you. I have not come to condemn you, but to save you. I have not come to enslave you, but to set you free. Turn from your disbelief, believe, and receive the gift of eternal life I offer you. And when we 
sing with Paul this hymn, when we look at the glory of who Christ is and what Christ has done, when we become captivated by the gospel, the beauty is it's more that we become what we worship. That in the same way that the self-grasping God makes us self-grasping people, so when we encounter the true God in Christ, we find that the self-giving God makes us a self-giving people. We become what we worship. I got a taste of that this week. Uh, this last week, our family went to San Diego for a little getaway or at the beach. And um, it was funny. Well, we got uh, some friends out there had hooked us up with this really just gorgeous, beautiful place to stay, this house. And it was funny. We were on the way driving out there. And our five-year-old son, Jake, he was like uh, asking on the way out there, I don't want to go. Like, let's just go back home. I really don't want to go. Can we just go home? We're like, dude, it's going to be like the beach and fun and water. We're going to have a blast. No, I really want to go home. I don't want to go. And like, oh, buddy, it's vacation, you know. Uh, but then we finally got there, and we realized why he had been so upset. He walks into this gorgeous home where he's like, actually, okay, I guess we can move here. You know? <laughs> we're like, and <laughs> we're like, buddy, we're not moving. We're just on vacation. <laughs> and like, and I realized he was probably reliving the trauma of a year ago when we picked up when we moved here and thinking, here we go again. <laughs> like, no, dude, we're not moving. We're just on vacation. Uh, but we get there, and it's, it, we had a blast and all. But on Saturday, um, you know, we're driving places back and forth. And Saturday, uh, we're coming back home, and uh, either my wife or I, I won't say who, one of us, um, I'll just say that I tend to be the clumsy one in the family, right? But uh, there was a code to get into the garage instead of a key or opener, right? So, um, so one of us is getting out of the car to look up the code to punch it in. And we had the emergency brake on. And we thought it was a neutral, but it was actually in first. And while we're out, like, just shaboom, like, the car just boom, rammed and just mangled the front garage door, right? And so we are like, oh, my gosh, this is someone else's home. They've already been so generous, and now we just destroyed their garage, and this is going to be thousands of dollars that we don't have, and what are we going to do? We're in a mess, and, oh, vacation is ruined, and now our hearts are low, you know? And <laughs> so we call. So I call the people from Friends Church that, that kind of run the, run the home and all, coordinate people who are staying there. And they're like, oh, don't worry about it. Hey, we're coming right down. I'm like, all right. So um, Mike and Cindy are their names. They, they come down. And um, Mike, I don't know this at the time. I don't find out till later afterwards from someone else, but uh, is actually a rocket scientist. Like, designs rockets, whatever, right? <laughs> you know? But he shows up in, like, his gym shorts and his rough T-shirt, whatever, a big smile on his face. And, and anyways, he pulls out, he's brought his tools, and then he and I spend, like, the next two hours, like, hour and a half, two hours, just, like, pounding out the dents in the garage and he's on one side I'm on the other like kicking it back in place and Cindy finds the paint and we paint it back up and and like basically two hours like getting the bolts back in and restoring this garage door and we didn't hide it from the owners you know they sent pictures and the owners are actually like hey it's fine we actually it looks great we're no worries it's all, it's all good right like oh my gosh thank goodness you know um and we were so relieved and re-entered this vacation uh, but what struck me was this felt like a little microcosm or window into the nature of the gospel, right? Where God has given us this glorious, beautiful home to live in, this creation that we live in, his world. And yet we've like slammed a freaking car right into the garage door. You know, like we've, <laughs> we've demolished God's good world with our sin. 
And yet, Jesus, Mike was like Jesus, though. You know, though he was in the form of a rocket scientist, <laughs> he took on the form of a garage door repairman. You know, <laughs> and not just had me watch him, but us called me to participate and us working together to restore and bring his world back together. And what struck me was, as you met Mike and Cindy, they weren't upset. You know, I'm like, do they? I'm sure they had Saturday plans, their vacation, but. The self-giving God had made them a self-giving people. They showed up with a smile, with joy, with hope, and they died to themselves. For giving, they gave up their Saturday afternoon, whatever plans they had for missional. They died to themselves that they might bring life to us. They kind of substituted their plans, whatever, to enter into our condition with us and to help us um, get out of it, to repair and restore and bring things back together. And I was just really struck by Mike and Cindy going, man, the self-giving God has made them a self-giving people. Did it all with joy and delight. And uh, similarly, um, man, I, I think with Jesus, like Jesus is almost like my son, right? Only Jesus isn't going on vacation. He's moving there, right? Like Jesus enters in and he comes. He enters into our condition to help serve us and lay his life down and restore us. He goes to hell and back to enter into where we're at, our condition with us, and bring life to us. The self-giving God makes us a self-giving people. And as we move on to the final part of this passage, the ending of this hymn shows the result and the hope. Paul says that, uh, verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. We find here that Jesus is the humble king. Jesus is the humble king. The one who became a slave to all has now been exalted as king of all. That the one who placed himself under us uh, for the life of the world has now been all exalted over us to bring that life to the world. And it's interesting to me. I let, I let Paul use that word, therefore. It's therefore, because of what Christ has done, because he humbled himself, he's been exalted. We find that the God of the gospel loves to humble the proud and to exalt the humble. And he goes, uh, Paul's going like, it's because, it's not like Jesus was humble, but now he's king, so he's not anymore. He's like, no, it's because of his character, because of uh, the, the life that he displayed and lived, that God has exalted him as king over all. This means that it's good news that Jesus is king, because we need, our world needs to be set right. And the reality is, Jesus is way better at it than you or I am, right? Like, putting me in charge of setting the world right, judging the world, whatever, and be like asking me to perform surgery on you, right? Like you don't want it to happen because I would probably pull out some stuff that's supposed to be in there and like, yeah, not get the stuff that's supposed to come out, right? But Jesus is a better judge than you or than I. He's a better king. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to set his world right. And he's got the character that we can entrust the judgment of the world to him who we know will do it rightly. I also love how it doesn't say uh, therefore, Jesus exalted himself. He says, no, therefore, God exalted him. And similarly, as we, as you and I, kind of like that story with Mike and Cindy, as we seek to be 
Uh, Ricardo called it last week an embodied paraphrase. We seek to be a, a, a microcosm, a window, a signpost, a mini version of the bigger story that Jesus has lived for us, that we would be windows in living that kind of story for one another. That as we do that, we do the dying, God does the rising, right? That we don't have to be consumed with trying to exalt ourselves or raise ourselves up or establish a reputation or a name or identity for ourselves. I love Paul Miller uh, puts it this way. He says, yeah, like Jesus did the dying, the Father does the rising. That God delights to raise us when we humble ourselves, to pour himself into us and to establish us on the foundation of his grace, right? It says here that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. A uh, question that I've often had folks ask over the years is like, so is, does this mean universalism, that kind of everyone ultimately becomes Christian all? And uh, no, that's not, not what this is saying. Uh, we see that in the gospel, even the demons confess, right? Even their tongues confess and they obey. Their knees bow and it says they obey like what Christ tells them to do. When Jesus says, go, they depart. And they recognize and confess Jesus as Lord. Only they do so in defeat and in fear that it means they don't get their way, right? And so the reality is that all of us, you and I, uh, you will bend the knee, you and I will bend the knee and we will confess that Jesus is Lord. The question is whether we will do so in joy and love, who, uh, love of Christ and who he is, or whether in fear and defeat, because it means getting our toys taken away, right? That the self-giving king confronts a self-grasping people like he confronts us with his kingdom is not one where we're grasping for ourselves but one where he pries our clutches off in order that we could enter into the communion of love that marks his kingdom where we give our lives with and for one another where this restored humanity and all creation becomes saturated by the redemptive love in christ that lays down our lives for one another and the goal of all this and here is that God is reconciling the world through Christ. And it says God is highly exalted. That phrase actually could also be translated as super exalted. It's like he's been placed up at the top, right? The name that is above every name, that is a name for Yahweh in the Old Testament, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus is there. It says that uh, the confession is that Jesus Christ is Lord. Back in the day then, everybody knew Caesar is Lord. He was the top dog, right? It's essentially like saying here, Jesus is president, right? Like, like yes, there are earthly authorities and rulers that, that we respect and pray for, whatever, and yet there is a higher authority that our ultimate allegiance is to, Jesus. His is the name above every name. He is the right hand of God and God's ruler over the world. When it says in heaven and earth and under the earth, it's saying like the whole cosmos, God is reordering creation around Christ, the risen ascended king and the craziest thing here is that you know we're invited to lift high jesus in love to let go of our self-grasping and enter this self-giving in the presence and the power of jesus's spirit and so we're invited to confess with our tongue not only in jesus's lord but in the words that we are invited to when we lift jesus high we are aligning our lives with the order of reality and there's a blessing that comes flows out of that we're aligning our lives with the nature of things when we lift jesus high with our praises when we praise him for who he is and what he's done when we sing songs to him like we're going to do here in a minute when we worship him when we pray to him and we lay out our lives before him we're confessing with our tongue we're lifting him up and aligning our lives with reality 
And similarly, when we are invited to bend our knee to Jesus today, to actually submit our lives to his ways and his kingdom and go, God, those things that I've been clutching for myself, I want to let go and give over to you. And God, I want your ways, your self-giving ways to become my ways, right? We're invited to align our lives as we bend the knee before Christ as king to begin ordering our lives in preparation to be made fit for his kingdom. And the craziest thing is that when we do this, we get lifted up with him. That the gospel proclamation is that we have been raised and seated high with Christ in the heavenly places. We have been raised with him. The early church father, Athanasius, he put it this way. He said, God became man that man might become God. What he meant by that was not like we become deities or these little gods or whatever else, but what he meant by that was uh, in the same way God's purpose in coming in Christ and, and dying on our behalf was that we might be united with him and raised up with him and participants, First Peter calls it, that we become partakers of the divine nature, participants in the life of God. God invites us to participate with his divine life. That as we become filled with his spirit, as he just fills us with his spirit, his power and his presence, unites us to himself, Christ is king, and we're brought in the spirit through Christ into the kingdom of God our Father. The invitation this morning is actually that as we lay down our self-grasping and receive God's self-giving, we get grafted into the very life of God as his people. So the invitation this morning for us, I believe, is to give up the grasp give up the grasp. And there's two things I mean by that. Uh, the first is to give up those things that we're grasping to, to kind of make a name for ourselves, an identity for ourselves, to feel secure in ourselves. And it raises the question this morning, what are you clutching? What are you grasping to? Maybe for you, it might be that romantic pursuit of that relationship that you know is not actually healthy or right, but maybe you've been living under the lie of the enemy that's going, hey, God's just trying to keep something from you. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. He doesn't want you. And the freedom to be to stop grasping at it and to bend the knee to God and his ways and trust him. It could be uh, that security, like that lifestyle that you've been grasping for, feeling like I'll be content, I'll have peace when I get to this place in life and the things that, 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 that represent that, that, that home, that car, that amount of money in the savings account. And God is going, hey, give up the grasp. You can't be faithful and work and do this stuff, but trust me to be able to no longer need to seek to control that. It could be uh, trying to control like our self-image, that whole self-esteem thing we talked about earlier, where it could be like, man, feeling like I need to grasp it, uh, proving that I'm okay for, for others and for people, and maybe that's like on social media or how I talk with people and all. And, and God, I think God's inviting some of us this morning to give up the grasp, stop grasping to make an identity for yourself and receive my naming of you as my son, my daughter. Like receive your love for me and my self-giving for you and let that be the foundation that you build your life upon. Like we as the self, we can go from being a self-grasping to a self-giving people through the love of Christ. The second thing I mean by that is that we not only give up the things we're grasping after, that all, but also that we would give up the grasp, we give up, the self-grasping God. That there may be some of you this morning who have been living under a Genesis 3 God. 
the lies of the enemy who wants to paint this, this picture, this distorted picture of God's character as he's ultimately out just to, uh, to oppress or control you or the tyrant who wants to enslave you. And it's, it's ultimately what gives us the power to live a self-giving life is when we, we encounter the reality of the self-giving God. And so I believe God is calling some of us this morning to lay down our idols. Maybe it's even idols that we put Christian language, Christian terminology and stuff around, but the gospel is when God has come in Christ to take a sledgehammer to that false image of God. He's inviting you today to enter into allegiance, to bend the knee and confess with the tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord, to enter into allegiance to the true maker of heaven and earth, the God who is for us, who has come for us in Christ. So as we come to the table this morning, we come to the reality of Christ's self-giving for us. We come to the body broken and the blood shed, where Jesus continues to give of himself to us as his people, that he invites us to come and receive from him, to feed on him his life given that we might have life. And so as we come this morning, we're invited to give up those things that we're grasping and also to give up our false perceptions of God the lies of the enemy sown, and to give our lives fully in allegiance to the self-giving God who's come for us in Christ. In a moment, we're going to receive communion, uh, and we're going to do this this morning as we're worshiping and all, and so as we do that, um, you can feel free to not all feel like we need to come at once. Uh, we can, as the ushers come forward in a moment here, as I pray to, to grab the elements um, and to offer the elements to us as a people, uh, you can take your time. If we all come at once, the lines get really long. So, one, feel free to wait uh, if you want until the lines come down a little. And the other thing is that um, we can walk and chew gum at the same time, right? Like we can sing and come forward for a communion at the same time. Uh, but if you would stand with me, and I want to pray for us as we prepare to come and worship Christ our King with our tongue and come to the table where we symbolically bend our knee in submission to the King and reverence and receive his life for us join me in prayer. God, thank you that you are not the self-grasping God, but the self-giving God. God, the, the whole biblical story is you pursuing your people, your creation, your world, God. But ultimately, we look this morning to the climax of that, that you have come for us in Christ. Jesus, we find in you a humble king who is not out to get something from us so much as to give yourself to us, God, and to form us and make us as a self-giving people. Lord, we pray that, uh, God, in the power of your spirit, God, you would guide us in knowing where, God, you would convict us this morning, guide us in knowing where are those areas that we're clutching and clinging to. Holy Spirit, Spirit of the living God, I, I pray that this morning you would, even now, Lord, be convicting hearts and minds, God, of those places that we're clinging to, looking for identity, looking for assurance, where places that betray our lack of trust in you being with us and for us. And that we would let those things go and receive your presence with us in this place. And Jesus, I want to pray this morning, particularly for any who are here who have maybe been living under the Genesis 3 lie, God. The, the attack on your character that says you're a tyrant who's looking to keep something ultimately from us, God. That, that um, that is more out to get us, God. 
God, I want to pray that if there's any here this morning that they would place their trust in you, Jesus, that you would uh, guide them, Lord, that we would be able to bend our knee and confess with our tongue as a sign of our allegiance, Jesus, to you, the self-giving God who is the earth's rightful king. So Jesus, we exalt you. We give you all praise and honor and glory as your people. We pray that your life would take root and become our life together. In the name of Christ that we pray, amen.